Thank you for being here today. We're going to continue in our series this morning, The Story of God, where we've been looking this fall at the overall picture of God in the Bible, all that God has done by looking at different eras in biblical history. And we've only got three more weeks after uh, this Sunday, three more Sundays, and we will have looked at a 30,000 foot view over all of God's working in Scripture. You know, and I, it just kind of dawned on me this last week that I can't imagine the Lord being more pleased than a church to take some time to say, you know what, let's just look at the overall Bible. Let's look at the overall story of what God has done. So I just think the Lord's really pleased with us taking time to do this and for us to look at not just the historical parts, but also recognizing that the God of the Bible still speaks to us today. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off. If you remember last week, we looked at the era of the kings where the the nation of Israel, which was God's people, had divided into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was referred to as Judah. And we looked at the history of those kingdoms. And if you remember, both of those kingdoms ceased to exist. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians and is marked by the date 586 B.C., which was the time that the temple of God there at Jerusalem was destroyed. And, and so today we're going to leave the era of the kings, and now we're going to look at the era of the exile and return of God's people. So the title of our message today is The Story of God in the Exile and Return. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word from Jeremiah chapter 32. If you can't physically stand, then you just be standing in your hearts unto the Lord. But uh, if you've been reading your one-year Bible this last week, you would have read this passage. This is Jeremiah prophesying about the coming conquering of Judah, the southern kingdom, and ultimately their exile, but even God's faithfulness to return them. So Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 28, says, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm going to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now that is uh, another term for the Babylonians. And in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter, this, will enter and set this city on fire and burn it. With the houses where the people who have offered incense to Baal on the roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. You see here in this first part, church, he's talking about their sins that is bringing about this discipline. He says, indeed, verse 30, Indeed, the sons of Israel and Judah and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For their sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been built to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face. Because of all the evil that the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. 
They built the high places of Baal, and they are in the valley of Ben-Hanim to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I have not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. He was literally saying they were burning their children to pagan gods. But then verse 36, he says, Now therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the city of which you say, It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he doesn't end there. In verse 37, he says, Behold, then I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Lord, you are holy. And God, your word is holy. And God, I, I believe that you want to speak to your people this morning. God, I pray that you would empower me through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, to be able to preach this word. And God, I pray that, that, that hearts would be softened here today. That, Lord, you would speak to people, God, for your name and for your glory. God, help us to see not just all the historical facts here as just historical facts. God, that this is your story. And it's what you have done. And also, God, shows us the God of today, Lord, what you are still doing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what we see here in Jeremiah 32 is essentially a concise, kind of a Reader's Digest version of everything that God is going to do. He calls the people of God out for their sins, their idol worship, and for their turning their back toward on God. God says, I'm going to discipline them. I am going to hand them over. They'll be taken into foreign lands. But one day, I will bring them back and I will restore him. Store them. And so today, we're going to jump right into our questions that we've been using to guide us in this series. So the first question is, what are the major happenings during this season in God's story? The first fact we need to see in this era is first we need to understand the state of the people of Judah prior to the exile. We need to see why, why was God about to exile these people? Why were they about to endure such discipline? And the reality is that the Bible shows us that the people of God prior to the exile were sinful people. And we see the sinfulness of the people there in Jeremiah 32 that we read this morning. Man, great sinfulness. The Bible says that they had taken idols and put them into the house of God. And that they were even going as far as to sacrifice their children, burning them to pagan idols. And if that was not worse, if that was not enough, the Bible makes it very clear that they were continuing to sin even beyond this. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 25 through 26, the prophet Ezekiel again speaks about the people's idolatry, but even their sin of covetousness and their abuse of women, saying, Thus says the Lord, You eat meat with blood in it, you lift up your eyes to your idols as you shed blood. Should then you possess the land? You rely on your sword, you commit abomination, and each one of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you possess the land? See, the sinfulness of the people was going beyond just idolatry is that they were abusing, sexually abusing even their neighbors' wives and those around them. It shows the, the, the distance that they had gone from God. And in Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, we see the, real, the reality of why the people of God are acting this way is because it is flowing from the leaders of God's people who are also sinning against God. 
Micah says, now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for bribes. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. This, this shows us, by the way, in this passage, that the sinfulness of these people was coming back to the reality of the sinfulness of their leaders, even their spiritual leaders, their priests, their prophets, their pastors, for, for one term to help us to be able to understand that, were sinning against God. Church, this should remind us that leadership matters and that spiritual leadership matters. And while at Indian Baptist Church, we're never going to endorse a candidate. We're always willing to pray for anyone who is in office or even running for office. The reality is, is that we're about to enter into a midterm election season here. And what we would say to you is, is it's important for you to recognize the role of leadership and how everything flows from leadership. And so as you go to the polls, man, elect people who are godly people. Elect people who are godly, not just in their words, but also in their actions. The Bible shows us here, though, that these people were sinful. Secondly, the Bible also shows us that prior to the exile, the people of God were warned by God. It wasn't like they had messed up once, and so God sent them into judgment. But over and over and over again, we see God sent prophet after prophet calling the people to repent, telling them that if they didn't turn back to God, is that judgment was coming. In fact, for the 150-year time span that Judah existed alone, there were nine different prophets that God sent during that time frame to speak to the people of God. But they continually hardened their hearts against the voice of God. Probably one of the greatest examples of the hardness of the hearts of God's people during this season towards the word of the Lord comes in Jeremiah chapter 36. It starts off with a warning Jeremiah, the Bible says in verse 1 of Jeremiah 36, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations. From the first day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Now this would have been several years Basically, says, write down again everything that I've said to you. And this is the reasoning. Listen to the heart of God here. He said, perhaps the house of Judah will hear all of the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. God is sending them warnings so that they would turn back to him. Look at this gracious picture of God here. But we see in verse 22 here that the reality is though God is being gracious and that's just like any good father does is that we discipline our children but we discipline so that they may return back to us this is what happens the Bible says in verse 22 so the king this is Jehoiakim was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with the fire burning in the brazier before him this was essentially a fire pit doesn't sound like a bad idea says when Jehodi had read three or four columns. This is of the words that Jeremiah had written. It says, The king cut it with a scribe's knife, threw it into the fire that was in the brazier, until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Yet the king and all of his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend 
their garments. God was being a gracious God. God was sending them warnings. And the arrogance, think about the arrogance of God's people. The arrogance of this king to take the word of the Lord and just throw it into the fire. They had no intention of listening to the words of God. And this was not unique to this king. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 24, 19, that God was consistently sending prophets to bring them back to the Lord, that though they testified against them, listen what it says, yet they would not listen. Man, as we hear this today, we can see that the justice and discipline of God was rightly about to be poured out on his people because God is not a judge of this earth that can be twisted or sometimes does not punish evil or does not pour out justice. God is a righteous God and he will discipline his people and he will execute righteousness. So the Bible shows us that they were sinful and that they were warned. But the Bible also shows us that prior to the exile, the people of God were also promised a day of restoration. As we saw this morning in Jeremiah 32, not only does God speak of a day to his people during this era of punishment against his people, but he also speaks of a day where they would go into exile, but then he would bring them home. And he would restore them and he would bless them. In Jeremiah chapter 29, a very common passage is that it's actually a passage in context that is written as a promise of when God is going to bring them home from exile. It says in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years is complete, see, God didn't just promise restoration. He put a date on it. He said, 70 years you're going to go into exile and then I'm going to bring you back. When seven years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And then verse 11, which we all probably know pretty well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then they will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from where I sent you into exile. Now in this familiar passage of scripture, not only does God promise a day of restoration... But in context, we also understand that restoration was going to come on the heels of God's correction and discipline. Church family, I fully believe today for every one of us in this room that God, Jeremiah 29, 11 is true, that God loves us, that he has a plans for us to give us hope and a future. But in greater context is that that passage does not stand alone. In context, God is also says that my plans for you sometimes may endure my discipline, sometimes may endure hardship, sometimes may endure moments that you would have rather gone without, but God is sovereign even over those things. David, who was a man after God's own heart, said, God calls these bones which you have broken to rejoice. Church family, God does have a plan for us. But that plan of blessings ultimately is part of him working his covenant purposes in our lives of his children as a good father. Sometimes that means discipline. And so that's exactly what God was doing here. He was going to bring them back. He was going to bring a day of restoration, but on the hills of discipline. The second major happening we need to see in this era is the state of the people of God during the attack and the exile. It's, in, it's good for us to understand the timeline of how these events folded as far as God's people being brought into exile. So let me give you that timeline very briefly this morning. The first attack 
and deportation of God's people happened around 605 B.C. under the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 through 15 speaks of this first attack. It says, At the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his official. So the king of Babylon took captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Now, a few things to note here is that first, most scholars believe is that this, this took place roughly around that 605 B.C. Is that roughly this was when God started the clock on the 70 years in exile. This first deportation, as soon as these first people went into exile, this is when God started that clock on 70 years. It's also important for us to know that most scholars believe that this was right around the time that both Ezekiel and Daniel, the prophets, were also taken away into exile. And then 2 Kings 24 shows us that as this king of Judah is removed, is that Jehoiakim's uncle is that he puts, Nebuchadnezzar puts him as king over Judah to, to basically be a puppet king in that moment. And he changes his name even to Zedekiah. And so King Zedekiah rules over Jerusalem there, for rough, over Judah for roughly 10 years as the puppet king to Nebuchadnezzar. Then the second attack and deportation of God's people happened around 586 B.C. And this happens under the reign of Zedekiah. And the reason why this happens is because Zedekiah revolts against Nebuchadnezzar is that he tries to usurp his authority. And this uh, destruction and this attack is much more violent. The Bible says in 2 Kings 25 verses 8 through 11, it says, Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, a servant of king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Listen at verse 9. He burned the house of the Lord. So this is when the temple of God was destroyed. The king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. That's important to know, too. The walls even around the city were destroyed. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. Now the Bible makes it clear that it was during this second wave of exile that Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah himself, was also carried away into exile. Now can you imagine the burden of his heart? For 40 years, Jeremiah has prophesied to the people of God, if you would just repent, God will give you grace. And then now in this moment, as the kingdom is being destroyed, the temple has been destroyed, and the people of God are being carried away into Babylon, the Bible says that he writes the book of Scripture called the Lamentations. The word lament basically means to weep. It is a funeral song is what he's writing here. And in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 11, you see how broken he is of this moment. 
He said, my eyes fell because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. Church family, this this would have been very traumatic for the people of God. This would have been the people of God in that day. This would have been their Pearl Harbor or their 9-11. This would have been something that they would have lived and understood and then the third major happening, then we need to just look at is, so what does the lives look like of the people of God during the exile? So the people of God before the exile, the people of God in the middle of the attack, and then during that 70-year time frame, what does it look like to be the children of God living in among the people, uh, living in a foreign land? Now we know that Jeremiah had prophesied to the people that while you live in the land, to settle down there. You're going to be here a while. God's going to complete this discipline. And so the Bible says that they plant farms, that they build houses, that they give their children in marriage. They are able, even though they're living in subjection to the king of Babylon, they're still in many ways able to function as the people of God like they did in a similar way like they did when they were in Egypt. Probably the the greatest book that we have that explains this season, that 70 years of the people of God living in exile is the book of Daniel. And even in the middle, though, of the book of Daniel, some of the greatest examples of God's faithfulness come during this season. See, God, God, they're in exile, but God doesn't leave his people. In the same way, again, as we as parents, as we discipline our children, we don't leave, our, we don't leave them. We don't push them away. They are still our children. God's people are being disciplined, but God is still near to them. In Daniel chapter 1, we see that God begins to raise up these these young men, these young Jewish men to be faithful unto the Lord, and God gives them favor. In Daniel chapter 2, the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that no one is able to interpret, but Daniel is able to interpret it. And so God raises him up to be over all the wise men and all the officials in Babylon. He is a, he's the Joseph of their day. In Daniel chapter 3, we see the famous story of Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as Nebuchadnezzar makes this idol to himself and that everybody must bow and worship this depiction of himself is that they choose not to worship. And because of this, they are thrown into a fire. And if you've never read that story, it's one of the most exciting stories of the Old Testament. They throw these three young Hebrew boys in the fire and then the king looks to his official and says, how many boys did we throw into the fire? And they said, three, Lord. He said, well, there's four in the f- walking around the fire, and the fourth man looks like the Son of God. And then they step out of the fire alive, and they don't even smell like smoke. And so he makes a proclamation of all over the land there that there is the one true God, the God of the Jews. A similar situation happens in Daniel chapter 6. Again, Daniel is being faithful unto the Lord, and he is praying unto the Lord three times a day, as was his custom, is what Scripture says. A law is made that nobody could pray to any other God. But Daniel continues faithfully praying to the Lord his God. And because of this, he is thrown into a lion's den. He is thrown into the den, but God supernaturally sends angels to shut the mouths of these lions. 
When the king comes early that morning and calls out to Daniel, says, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to shut the the mouths of the lions? And Daniel speaks out of the pit and says, Oh, king, my God has been faithful. He has sent his angels, and they have shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. And the Bible says that they roll the stone away from the pit, and they draw Daniel out. You see, even that's a a foreshadowing of something that God was going to do in the years ahead. See, in the years ahead head, God was going to take another man who was supposed to be dead. He was in a pit and God was going to roll a stone away and and bring another man out alive that was supposed to have died. See, God was always at work, even in the time of the exile. And church family, there's so many lessons that we can learn from those faithful followers of the Lord who were living in this pagan and foreign land. Because today as Christians, we too are exiles. We are aliens. We live in a land that is not our home with a promise of home on the horizon. But today, God is still with us, just like he was with them. And then this this gives way to our fourth and final major happening in the lives of God's people in this era. And that is we need to see the lives of the people of God during the return and the restoration of his people. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah give some of the greatest detail about the return and restoration of God's people from exile. See, these books show us that while in captivity, during the 70 years in captivity, that the Babylonian Empire is conquered by the Persian Empire. See, the people of God didn't have a whole lot of favor with the Babylonians, but God gave them great favor with the Persians. And then somewhere between 538 B.C. and 520 B.C., King Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return home. The first wave of the exiles to return home is led by a man named Zerubbabel. And he leads roughly 50,000 Jews to Israel, and they begin to rebuild the temple. Now, if you do the time frame on this, from the time that they went into exile to the time frame that scholars believe that Zerubbabel led this first wave of exiles back, if you start to crunch the numbers a little bit, it shouldn't surprise us, but it comes out to be exactly 70 years. God was faithful to his word. He sent them into exile and he said, I will bring you back out in 70 years. And 70 years later, they're back in Jerusalem. Then in roughly, once they get there, uh, roughly 458 B.C., a second wave of Jews return home and they, uh, to Israel and they are led by the priest. And so during that time frame under Zerubbabel and Ezra is the temple of God is restored It's rebuilt. The people of God start to reaccustom themselves to worship and those things. But something happened. As they rebuilt the temple, the people of the lands started to fear them again. Because they remember the mighty nation of Israel, the God of Israel. And so they start to attack them. The people of God begin to be afraid. And they begin to, to not work to rebuild the city with the same passion and zeal that they once have. And then roughly 10 years goes by where the people of God basically give up on the work. They're the people of God. They're living among the ruins still of Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt, but that's roughly it. But then God raises up another man, a man named Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah is a Jew, and he is still in Persia. He is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. 
And some of the men returned back from Jerusalem and he asked the question, what is the situation of the people of God in Jerusalem? And he hears the word that the walls have been destroyed, the gates have been burned with fire and the people are in disrepair. And the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 1 that he is burdened, he is, he is wrecked over this and he begins to fast and, and pray. But in that moment, God begins to raise up Nehemiah and gives him a burden. God sends him back to Jerusalem and he calls the people to begin to rebuild the wall and they do so. A good way to remember the time frame of the return and the exile to the completion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem is in two 70 year blocks. They were in exile for 70 years once they returned it was roughly another 70 years it took for them to complete rebuilding the city and begin to function as the people of God again. There's so many highlights in this restoration and return era. I don't have time to give all of them, but just let me give you a few. Ezra chapter 3 records when Zerubbabel and those first waves, waves of Jews come back and they start to rebuild the temple. And in Ezra 3, the Bible says that they lay the foundation of the temple. Again, everything around them is destroyed, but they're, they're going to work. God is being faithful to his promise. And when they lay the foundation of the temple, the Bible says they start to rejoice. The younger priests who were born in exile, who had never seen the previous temple, they begin to shout for joy. They begin to rejoice thinking, look what God has done. The older priest who remembered the previous temple, who are seeing that God is rebuilding it again. The Bible says they start to weep. And the Bible says that the weeping and the shouting could be heard afar off. God was doing a multi-generational movement. It was a picture of revival in the Old Testament. Another highlight of this moment had to be God sending Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows up. A people who've been living and hiding for 10 years. They started the work and then they, they stopped. They were a, a nation without a leader. They were the people of God without really the servant of God. God's man in that moment. In Nehemiah chapter 2, the Bible says that he gathers the elders, the leaders together. And this is what he says. It's a, it's a halftime speech. It's a coach moment where he gets them fired up about the work to rebuild. And he says to them, you see the bad situation that we're in. The Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be in reproach. And the Bible says at the end of verse 18, they say to him, they say back to Nehemiah, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. It was that, that, that moment where they recommitted to God's purpose. It was a revival moment among God's people. And then probably the last highlight is after the wall is rebuilt in 52 days, by the way. They rebuild the wall in 52 days. It's a miraculous, supernatural work. Once they've rebuilt the wall, the temple is rebuilt. The wall has been rebuilt. The city has been rebuilt. People are living again in the city. They've reinstituted worship customs. And they said that they, they bring Ezra the priest in. And they ask him to read the word of God. And in Ezra, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, records this moment. Listen at verse 3. It says, then he, Ezra, read from it, speaking of the word of God, before the square, which is in the front of the water gate, from early morning... Until midday, in the presence of the men and women, and all those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Church, this was a hallowed ground moment for these returned exiles. They were standing 
in the middle of the faithfulness of God. God had brought them back. God had rebuilt what was destroyed. And now they were hearing the word of God again in the land that God had given them. I said this a few weeks ago, but you see it over and over again in Scripture. God loves a comeback story. God loves a revival story. God loves when his people sing down and out. and God has a fourth quarter moment. And that's exactly what we see on the other side of the exile. Church family, there's so much we could talk about in this season. It's one of my favorite seasons in the Old Testament. But we just don't simply have the time today. So let's move on to our second question today. What are some key lessons that God wants us to learn from this era in his story? Again, there's so much here. If you're in leadership, especially in spiritual leadership, but in secular leadership in any way, read the book of Nehemiah and extract the principles. There are some of the most practical lessons on leadership from the book of Nehemiah anywhere else in all of secular writing. There's so much good that we could gain from looking at this season. But as I, as I got before the Lord this week as your pastor, I said, Lord, what do you have to say to your people? I felt like the Lord gave me three quick things, and I want to share those with you very briefly today. First, this story reminds us, this era in God's story reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful. God told him, if you don't repent, I'm going to send discipline. And discipline's what happened. But he also told him, once I discipline you 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And in 70 years to the day, God sent them back. And then God was faithful to them again while they were rebuilding this work over and over and over again. It just shows that God is faithful. And for those of us here today who read the story of the God of the exiles and the return, this is the same God that we serve today. He is still faithful. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've been given so many promises of God that we can be reminded of of his faithfulness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it speaks about the promises that are given to Christians. And it says, for as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Says the promises of God are something that you can stand on because God is faithful. I'm going to give you just a few of these promises here today. Followers of Jesus, God is faithful because he has promised to bless us in this life with every spiritual blessing. Do not believe a prosperity gospel that says if you, if you come to know Jesus, God's going to make you rich. Nowhere in Scripture does God say that he's going to do that. But what he does say is that do not store up for yourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves do not break in and steal. The blessings that God has promised us are a eternal blessings and they are spiritual blessings god has promised his people and he has been faithful to say that he will be with us and near us in all things in matthew chapter 28 the last promise of the great commission jesus said and lo i will be with you even until the end of the age followers of jesus were promised god's grace and his mercy if this story this era shows us anything is that yes god's people mess up but god is faithful to give us grace Ephesians chapter 2 says, By grace you have been saved, not of your own works, lest any man should boast. Followers of Jesus, we're promised the power and authority of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to be with us as we share the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, Scripture says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. But probably one of the greatest words, one of the greatest promises that God is faithful to complete in the lives of his children comes when God promises us that when we leave this world in death forever, we are alive with him in eternity. In John chapter 11, Jesus said that for anyone who believes in me will live 
even if he dies. We had a lot of funerals in our church family this last week. I had one that I did this last week. And at those moments of death is that we need a promise. We need something that reminds us for the children of God that this does not have the final say. And I got to be reminded of that even just this last week. Of how the promises of God's faithfulness can give such great hope in our day. I got an opportunity to go visit the brother of a church member this last week. I'd never met him before. He uh, had just went home on hospice. And he was aware of where he was. His body was very lean and bore the marks of a long struggle with sickness in this life. I sat down with him next to his bedside. and He was at home with his wife and his granddaughter and introduced myself. And we small talked for a little bit. And then I asked him, his name was Dennis. I asked him about if he knew Jesus and what his, if he had a relationship with Jesus. And he said, absolutely so. And he started sharing with me some mission trips that he had been on and how he had served God in his life. And, and then rightfully, he was aware of his outcome and the future and what the future held for him. And I began to talk to him about going to heaven and what, what, what awaited him in eternal life. And it's okay, by the way, to talk about heaven to believers who are sick. It is one of our greatest promises. And in that moment where he had been sickly before and was struggling to keep his eyes open, when I started talking about heaven, something happened in this man. He, he perked up, his eyes got brighter, and he said, Oh, pastor, I can't wait to get to heaven. And then he started talking about the people he wanted to meet. He said, Pastor, I can't wait to, to meet that woman with the issue of blood. And he started telling that story again about Jesus being in a crowd and how somebody had touched him. And the Bible says that the, the power went out from him. And he said, Pastor, I just want to talk to this lady and say, what was it like when the power went out from you? And then he, he kind of sat there and started to wonder again. And then he perked up again. He said, oh, and Pastor, I can't wait to meet those three Hebrew boys in that fire. I, I, I can't wait to talk to them about what were they, what were they talking about as Jesus was walking around with them in the fire and, and he just got excited just talking about it and I could feel myself getting excited by his faith and then he sat back on his bed one more time and then he lifted up one more time with misty eyes and he said but oh brother Zach I, the person I can't wait to meet the most I can't wait to see my Jesus listen a man who was standing at the jumping off point was filled with so much hope and excitement it filled his Fading body with strength for a moment. And I got the message last night. It was fitting that I had him in my notes to tell today. That last night, what he looked for in faith, he got to see in reality. Church family, God is faithful. May we be those Christians who live out the words of the old hymn, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. This was the first promise I felt like the Lord wanted me to remind us of this morning. Very quickly, this era in God's story also reminds us that God has you where you are, that you might serve him. Again, there's so many areas in this passage where we can see how God used his people. But probably one of my favorites is that moment in Nehemiah. Where Nehemiah recognizes, he says in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. He saw himself in the middle of a broken situation, but he saw that God was with him and that God had put him in that situation that he may could be a vessel, an instrument for his use. Friends, I want you to know something today that God is still looking for those people who can be used by him. 
and he's still looking for those people who will recognize that you are where you are in the season that you are in, in the neighborhood that you are in, in the job that you are in, in the place that you are in life, in the family that you are in, that you might be a servant of Jesus. God is looking for those people while living in this exiled world who will say, God, I'll be a Daniel. God, I'll be a Nehemiah. I'll be an Ezekiel. I'll be a Jeremiah. I'll be somebody who can be used for your name and glory. If you're lacking passion in your life, if you're lacking purpose in your life, you're not going to find it anywhere else more efficiently and more fire-filled than you will in finding your purpose in God. He wants to use you this morning. And then finally, our last lesson in this era in God's story Reminds us that sometimes God's people just need to recommit to Him. Sometimes God's people need to recommit to Him. This passage, if it shows us anything, it's that sometimes God's people drift away. This is the whole reason why they had to be disciplined. Because the Bible says there, our passage this morning, Jeremiah 32, they turned their back on Him. Sometimes in life we do that. Sometimes it's because of blatant sin. We bring some things into the temple of God, bring them into our lives that grieve the heart of God. Sometimes we let idols come into our life. And listen to me this morning, church, is that God is faithful to discipline His people. One of the greatest ways that God disciplines His people is you know and you feel it in your soul that you are distant from God. And you can go to church and you can sing the songs and you can go through the motions, but something is missing. And all of us are susceptible to that. And all of us have been in those seasons at one point or not. But again, what we see in this passage is that God was drawing His people back. God was always working to bring His people back in intimacy with Him, to bring them back in nearness with Him. Sometimes we drift away from God. It's not even because of sin. Think about the people in Nehemiah's age. They were real passionate. They laid the foundation of the temple. They built the temple. They were doing the work of God. But then they got afraid. They got distracted and they went 10 years and nothing, did nothing for the kingdom of God. But then God rose up Nehemiah who spoke into their soul. And the Bible says that how quickly, how quickly that they were to say, yes, let us come and rebuild. And the Bible says they put their hands to the Lord. Why do you think they turned so quickly? It's because they knew in their souls that's where they were supposed to be. They knew they needed to be in nearness with God. Friends, let me ask you this morning, are you walking in nearness with God? Are you walking close to Him? Are you distant from Him because of sin? If that's the case this morning, and it's always going to be a temptation for us where we're separated, we are, our intimacy with God is hindered because of our sin, then maybe today you need to recommit and say, Oh Lord, wash me afresh and anew. Do a revival work in me. And hear me this morning, church. Whatever you're trying to, to, to replace God with, it'll never satisfy Jeremiah told the people of God this at one point, that they are hewning out for themselves empty cisterns that will hold no water. You go after something they think will satisfy, and it just never quenches your thirst. Or maybe today it's not sin. Maybe you're just afraid. Maybe you've been lied to. Maybe you just need to hear the call of the Lord today to say, come back. Come back. Maybe the Lord's speaking to you today to recommit your life. Say, Lord, I want more of you. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, here's the promise. Peter, who had also fallen away from God and had rededicated his life at one point, this is what he said, Therefore, repent and return, 
That your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Church, there's nothing more refreshing in this life than being in the presence of Almighty God. And then lastly this morning, I'm going to ask Brother Ron to come. Question number three. We've been asking ourselves throughout this whole series, or where are the redemptive threads that point us to Jesus in this era? We talked about last several weeks, is it all over Scripture? It's either pointing forward to Jesus or it's pointing backwards to Jesus. And during this, ex, during this time of the exile and the return, there's so many prophecies again that point us to Jesus. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 speaks about what Jesus would come to do. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise. Hear that? The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. He's talking about the day when Jesus would come and heal our sin-sick hearts and set his people free. Man, have you ever seen somebody born again that's just happy in Jesus? I mean, they've been set free. It, it looks like a calf that has been let out and he's jumping around and happy and excited. I'm an outdoorsman. I've seen, I've seen baby fawns do that before in the woods and they're just happy to be alive. They're jumping around and you can see that in somebody's soul. You see them in life when they've been set free in Jesus. He can still do that today. He still wants to do that in your heart and life. He can still heal the brokenness of our lives because He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. And as great as a picture of that is of Jesus in this era, there's one more picture. My former pastor, Dr. Steve Gaines, I remember him preaching a message years ago and he showed a type or a shadow of Jesus in this story. The book of Nehemiah, the Bible says they're working. It's about rebuilding the wall. Again, it's such an incredible story. At one point, the Bible says they're building the wall. They've got one hand on their sword, and the other hand, they're working. When they would get attacked, they would blow a trumpet, and everybody would come to fight, and they would fight for the Lord. Then they'd go back to work, and God used them in incredible ways. But all throughout that process, there were attacks coming, and two men especially were Sanballat and Tobiah. And they were men who were consistently trying to distract or discourage God's people. And by the way, Sanballat and Tobiah still live today. Sometimes they come from outside the church, and sometimes they come from inside the church. But it's the people who want to speak negatively when God is at work and try to distract the work. In Nehemiah chapter 6, the Bible says Nehemiah's up on the wall. He's a leader who's working. And one of these men come by and they say to him, Come down, Nehemiah, we need to have a meeting with you. And Nehemiah says this, I am completing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop that I come down for you? Man, what a leader. He just continues on. Several hundred years later, when the Son of God had come to this earth to give his life for the sins of the world, and he too was completing the work and made his way to the cross. And on the cross, as he is suffering for the sin of the world, everything that keeps us from walking in nearness with God, he is taking on himself. And the Jewish leaders would come by, and those who would mock him would come by and say, Oh, if you are the Son of Man, then why don't you bring yourself off the cross? But he did not remain. He did not come down. But he remained. And the reason why is he was completing a great work. He could not come down to him. And in fact... The last things that he would say on the cross 
was it is finished. He completed that great work. Church family, as we come this morning, and this is what we're praying for. We're praying for revival in our church. We're praying for revival among our hearts and lives and our communities. And revival starts among God's people. And the same God who restored his people in that day and age, the same God who disciplined and brought them away, but then brought them back is the same God we serve today. And so this morning, if you're in need of spiritual revival today, then run to him and say, oh Lord, here I am. I don't want to ignore your warnings anymore. Some of you today running to the Lord, you may avoid some discipline. You may avoid some exile in your life today by running back to the Lord, by laying down sin, by cleaning out the temple of God. Come this morning and say, oh God, I want you more than I want anything else in this world. Or maybe today, you just need to come to know Him. We talk about the promises of God. We talk about God being faithful. God fulfilling His promises. And you don't know any of those things because you never truly met Him. I want you to know today that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God really did die on a cross. And He really did do that to say to everyone in this room today, I love you and I want you. Come and follow me. And this morning, He can save you. He can save you from your sin. He can save you from yourself. Just give your life to Him today. The Lord is waiting. All he asks of us is to respond. This morning, our pastors are going to be up here. This altar is open. If you say, Pastor Zach, I need God to do a revival work in me, then come. Man, come and kneel. Kneel there at your seat. Or maybe today you say, I truly need to give my life to Jesus. Right there where you are as we sing, say, dear Jesus, save me. I give my life to you. Brother Ken's going to come as he leads us in this song. You do business with the Lord right now. If you need to join this church, you feel free to come. And you respond in however God's leading you to respond. Would you stand this morning? Father, we ask you in Jesus' name, would you move today? Would you speak in the hearts and lives of your people? God, would you revive those who need revival? God, would you save those who need to be saved? God, would you encourage those who need to be encouraged? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Come now if you need to come.